0: politics podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. I've long believed my guest today, Charlie Cook, has the best job in politics as one of the one or two most respected elections, handicappers, and analysts in the country. The Cook Report has been required reading for anyone who wants to know what's happening and what will happen in Washington, D.C. since the mid-80s and continues to go strong today. Charlie remains a fixture on news and elections television programs from meet the press to network news and election night analysis. So I'm incredibly pleased to have Charlie on today. Charlie Cook, tell me about how you grew up. Well, actually, I grew up in
1: Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, in the northwest corner of Louisiana, fairly typical middle, upper middle class background. I was a debater in high school. And that's uh, where I I think I picked up some researching skills and, you know, where you you do the affirmative action side of a question one hour and the negative side. And you kind of learn that there's, uh, you know, generally a certain degree of logic and truth on on each side. Came up to Washington, went to Georgetown, interned on the hill in various ways uh, and worked on the hill while I was in school. Then sort of got into, initially, it was the Democratic side, the Democratic, worked at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, was my first job at a college, I'd intern there. While I was in college, worked for a business pack, worked for a polling firm, Hamilton and staff. And, but by the early mid 80s, I found myself kind of uh, basically becoming a swing voter. I mean, I was voting for Republicans about 40% of the time, which if you're working for the Senate Democratic Policy Committee is kind of in poor form. And so I was trying to figure out how can I find a way to make a living, and I like politics, but just work for, but but not work for either side. So I took my six thousand dollars out of the Senate retirement fund, and my father-in-law co-signed a bank note for ten thousand dollars, and in nineteen eighty four started it.
0: Yeah, well, tell me about. So you mentioned growing up in Shreveport, middle class family. Was your family a political family? How do you think you got the bug to sink your teeth into politics the way you have?
1: Nobody in my family was ever involved in politics. I can only remember my dad having one political-oriented book, you know, on his bedside. And that was back, uh, it was was one that was fairly critical of Lyndon Johnson in 64. I mean, that's it. So um, it was debate. It was coming to Washington, going to debate camp two summers. And then because I was using law library They recruited me to do uh, some help out on opposition research or research actually I just say in general for a guy from my hometown who was a former state senator had lost a governor's race and was running for the US Senate, Bennett Johnston. So I worked in his campaign that spring and over the summer before I went to college. That's sort of what got me bit by the by the political bug.
0: Talk a bit about that Bennett Johnson race, as I understand it, maybe one of the better examples of right place, right time uh, as it relates to uh, somebody uh, elevating to the Senate.
1: As I said, he was a state rep, state senator, had lost to Edwin Edwards, the 1971 governor's race by like just a few thousand votes. Uh, which had to have been a heartbreaker. I didn't know him. I got involved with him uh the next year. He decided to run for against uh Alan Ellender, who was the incumbent U.S. senator. He was 81 years old, was a president pro tem of the Senate. He had been in so long that you know he wasn't coming back to the state that much. He wasn't particularly well known. So Johnston started off with a big lead, mainly name recognition. But as the race and as as Ellender started putting together a campaign and, you know, the race was getting closer and closer and closer. And then about three weeks before the election, when the race was basically tied, I think, Eleanor died of a heart attack. So suddenly the campaign gets turned on its head and it becomes a fight whether to reopen the filing for the Democratic primary, and you know they're able to kind of keep that from happening, and then Republicans switch out and come up with a former governor. Uh, anyway, it it was wild. So it went from a, a challenge to a almost like a, a a central committee fight to a four-way race, and um, it it was pretty weird. But my job was doing some research and driving the candidate around. So when you're a senior year of high school, summer after senior year of high school, and you're driving a U.S. Senate candidate around, you know, you're listening and you're picking things up. And, you know, I got some really, you know, great opportunities and uh, it really wet my appetite.
0: Well, Louisiana is known, obviously, for very unique political characters, unique political systems, unique political geography. Talk a bit about the Louisiana politics of mid-late 1970s, early 80s, as you're really sinking your teeth into things.
1: Yeah, this was the tail end of the one party era in Louisiana and, and in the South to a certain extent, Louisiana to a certain extent, that, you know, there was only one Republican member of the delegation then. But the um, you could see the Republican Party was building. I mean, they were coming along. But for the longest time, there were sort of two factions. There was sort of the reform faction of Democrats and then sort of the old line faction of Democrats. And it was a little new old but it was also sort of insider, outsider. Johnston was a pretty conservative guy, but he was running as the clean, good government guy. And Edwards was more, this is the way things are. And and Edwards was charismatic and Johnston was very methodical. And anyway, it was, uh, it was a fun place. Uh, but Louisiana... I think just growing up in Louisiana, you get a three-credit course in politics, and if you work in a campaign, it's a master's. And, And back then, Louisiana had, if not the... Uh, one of the most powerful congressional delegation out there. I mean, we're several committee chairs. The Gillis Long was the chairman of the House Democratic Conference. F. Edward A. Bear was chairman of Armed Services, and Otto Passman was one of the top people on Appropriations, and on and on and on. A hell of a delegation, and it was a, it was a great experience on Capitol Hill to kind of get to get to see all of this. Back in the 70s, it was a different time. In the 80s, it was a different time in American politics. It was a different time in Washington. At one point, we were on the fourth floor of the Russell building. Across the hall from us were the offices of Senator Edward Brooke, a a liberal African-American Republican senator from from Massachusetts. And here you had a Republican uh, who was a heck of a lot more liberal than a Democrat and you had you know office I mean, there was a substantial overlap between the two parties you know it was a time when the system worked very very differently than it does now a lot of times i kind of long for the old days my first job on capitol hill was they used to have they were patronage jobs elevator operators in the house and senate office buildings it was back when they had these old timey crank where you turn the crank this way to go up and that way to go down and and you were also giving directions to tourists and stuff like that. So, for about 3 or 4 months I was an elevator operator in the Senate off in the uh, Russell and Dirksen Senate office buildings. And although the Dirksen was actually a push button, but to be a freshman in college and you're meeting Hubert Humphrey and Barry Goldwater and Bob Dole and George McGovern and you know, you just sort of see the whole political world and future presidential candidates coming through. And you, you kind of learn some lessons that, you know, there could be people that you ideologically agree with that may be jerks or people that you don't agree with on, the, on anything in the world, but they
0: seem to be really nice people. Well, maybe but, give an example of one of those folks. Maybe give an example of somebody who, you know, might not have been aligned with where you were politically at that point, but, but impressed you as just a good person.
1: I'm not going to make a good person bad person value. OK, but I'll tell you an anecdote. Uh, this was when I was at the Senate Democratic Policy Committee. We were in the Capitol Building, SB8, in the basement of the Capitol Building for a good while, and then uh, moved to the Hart Building uh, after it first opened. And but I was walking it was late in the afternoon. I was walking down a hallway, the, dirt, the long corridor in the Dirksen Building. Uh, you know, I probably had my tie down to here and my blazer over my shoulder. I'm sure I was wearing khakis. Here, the door opened right next to me. And this southern drawl says, tough day, huh? And I turn and it was Jesse Helms. I didn't agree with Jesse Helms on anything on the planet, but he just sort of walks along. We're walking along and just making chit chat where you're from and all this. We're in that Ellender base. You do research and you find good things and bad things and all this. But um, after I got to Washington and, and uh, you know, I remember meeting some of the other elevator operators and I said, you know, what was Senator Ellender like? You know, to me, during that race, it was good versus evil and right versus wrong and young versus old and everything was black and white. But uh, say, oh, he was a really, really nice old guy and he'd tell you stories and stuff. You kind of realize that, you know, life is a little more complicated. It's a little more
0: nuanced. You start your newsletter in, in the mid 80s. But before that, what was there a handicapping industry? What did did that job exist before you started it?
1: There were political newsletters that had been around for a long time. Uh, Kevin Phillips, for example, had been a strategist with the Nixon campaign in 68. And rather than going into the White House, he started a political uh, newsletter and started writing columns and, and books. There was a guy who was uh, Alan Barron, who had been a press secretary for George McGovern and had started a newsletter called The Barron Report. And Evans and Novak were two old-time political columnists that were really good that had started a newsletter. In terms of handicapping, Congressional Quarterly Weekly Report did some. National Journal did did some. But actually, Stu Rothenberg was the assistant editor at a, a publication called The Political Report. It was owned by a very conservative foundation that was headed by a conservative activist, Paul Weirich. But for some bizarre reason, Wyrick wanted, he wanted to have this entity in the form of a political newsletter that was going to objectively look at races. And it was almost like a control. And I met Stu, when he was the assistant editor, he became the editor, and eventually bought it back. And, and the thing is, a lot of groups on the Democratic side and labor groups, liberal groups, they would subscribe to this newsletter because they thought they'd get the inside skinny on how conservatives were seeing races. And what they discovered was, it was actually a very good newsletter, but you know, it, it, you know the approach of that one was to pick three or four races a week and do pretty in-depth on those, but they didn't do ratings and all that. And it became, later became the Rothenberg-Click Report, and now it's Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez. Um, there was a little bit of ratings, but I, one of my stops along the way had been working for uh, the political action committee for the national association of home builders. And part of my job, uh, I was kind of the resident Democrat then. And there was a woman who had worked for the national conservative political action committee uh, that had come over and she was the Republican and we would both, we would evaluate every house race and every Senate race. And it, it, it hit me how, organizations and whether they were business or labor or liberal or conservative, environmental or whatever, uh, having somebody that had been a pollster who had worked in campaigns before, evaluating races was sort of something new or different. Coming at it not from the perspective of, of a traditional reporting journalist background, but more analyzing it. There was one experience uh, that was a good lesson for me in that first year, 1984. There was a House race in Indiana's 8th District, and uh, it was a freshman Democrat, Frank McCloskey, who had taken a Republican seat in 76. Anyway, Election Day comes, and it's basically tied. And the counts, the recounts come back and forth, and it becomes a hell of a mess. And I'm looking at it thinking, I've just started this newsletter. I'm trying to sort of develop sources and build credibility on both sides. And i to say, you know what? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an election law expert. I'm just going to stay out of this fight. And it was a really smart thing because emotions on that, you remember Florida 2000 Bush Gore, emotions were so high that had I tried to get involved, besides the fact that I didn't have the expertise, but had I tried to get into that, one side or the other Oh, we're going to think you were slanted. And I decided kind of back off. But the interesting thing is what Democrats should have done is what uh, the Senate did 10 years earlier, say, hey, you know what? This was a screwed up election. We're just going to rerun it. Democrats were in the majority, have been in the majority for 30 years and decided to seat their guy. It so outraged a lot of Republicans, even moderate Republicans, that it enabled, it was one of the catalysts for Newt Gingrich really coming along, pushing out Bob Michael, the Republican leader. The House started becoming much more hard-edged, but it was on the House side, not the Senate side. House pretty soon became, and both sides have fault here, incredibly poisonous, incredibly venomous. It was in the House, and the Senate wasn't like that at all. But then you started seeing this like a contagion, moving over from the House and infecting the Senate, and the thing is, the Senate, with its rules and traditions, it can't deal with that kind of partisanship. I mean, at least the House is majority rule, but the Senate can't deal with that. And in the early, you know, 89, 90, 91, 92, that's when you started seeing the Senate becoming starting to become as partisan as the House
0: is. And today, you know, they're both just incredibly partisan. And Yeah, well, that that's great historical context. We'll talk a bit more about starting your newsletter, just mechanically. You know, how do you go about that? How does one creating something from scratch, what does that process look like?
1: Yeah, what I did was—I mean, part of the, the uniqueness was doing ratings on all fifty, you know, on on all four and thirty-five House races. Which, of course, since most of them aren't competitive, it's not that big a deal. It's the ones that are, in all Senate races. So, what I did was I came up with a first issue, just published it, and I had borrowed uh, from a bunch of people various lists of lobbyists and of political action committees all over Washington, around the country. And I just started sending to them, with a coupon if they wanted to subscribe the first two or three issues. I'm just just sending it out, and you know gradually they started kind of put pick you know kind of picking it up, and then I got a really good break where the New York Times used to have a a, a Washington page inside every day, and there was this Washington talk, and. They ran a little piece about this new newsletter that had just come out that was saying this and this and this about the house. And that was like a good housekeeping seal of approval. And and, um, you know, just having uh, and, and it just sort of we were pretty much living off my wife's salary. Uh, she was working for a, a trade association political action committee. And, you know, we were living in a little townhouse out in Fairfax County and our our mortgage was a thousand dollars a month. And I had to come up with the mortgage and we were living off everything she did, everything she made. I could always tell when Lucy was getting nervous about money because I'd open the freezer and there'd be lots of frozen chicken and pork where, you know, it was like a squirrel stocking away nuts for the winter. But she was a great sport. And, um, you know, over time, and I think it's sort of 91, 92, you started going into a period of really interesting politics, 91, 92, 93, 94. But it was it was literally coming up with issues, mailing it out for free, and people saying, "Huh, this is kind of interesting," and sending you, you know, it was 150 bucks, and you know, early every afternoon, I, I did it from home for a while. I was uh, borrowed an office from a law firm. Uh, had sublet some office space uh, over near where uh, Bullfeathers, you know, is now on the hill.
0: And who, in your mind, in that era was the target audience? Who were the people that you were trying to, to get in front of at that point?
1: It was basically all institutional. It was corporations, unions, trade associations. It was almost all institutional, very few individual people. And the individual people were probably lobbyists and lawyers and stuff. And it was very Washington-centric. Till today, it's actually a whole lot of our subscribers, uh, vast majority, are individuals. And they're just individuals that are really, really interested in politics. I have no earthly idea. My guess is it's probably relatively even between the two sides, but a lot of them probably are active in politics in their home areas and want something more than just what's what's available on the internet. Back when I started it, I mean, first of all, there was no internet. And secondly, you didn't have all this free information floating around. And back then, knowledge was power if you knew more about races than anybody else that was like a really big deal and particularly the house because you know almost anybody can be conversant about senate races if they wanted to if they tried but it was fun opportunities um uh, you know to get to speak to you know, the Senate Democratic Conference or the Senate Republican retreat. Uh, there was before one cycle, I guess it was 2006, that Vice President Cheney's office called and wanted to know if Stu and I could come down and have breakfast with him at the residence. The spirit of the breakfast was basically, are things as bad as it seems that they are? And, and talking about individual races and stuff, and where Cheney, who had been in the House leadership, you know, he actually knew, knew the House, knew districts pretty well, What's what do you think's going on this couple of months before
0: the election? But it was a,
1: a lot of really, really fun opportunities to do things.
0: And and how important was the Almanac of American Politics? The
1: first edition was 1972, which and it came out. I was in a bookstore in my hometown in Shreveport in and I'm in this bookstore and I see this big book, The Almanac of American Politics. And I never, you know, and it, again, it had just come out. And so I bought it. It became sort of my Bible. They'd get pretty dog-eared, and i get to the point where I'd always have a hard bound for, like, permanent because a
0: soft bound was, would get so battered up. Uh, you mentioned some lean years uh, as you started your firm. Was there a, a moment, a year or something where you realized a few years in, you know, I think this is going to work? What was the point where you think, you know, this is all starting to come together?
1: Um, is it is it okay if I say something nice about one of your competitors? Sure. Sure. Um, I was getting this positive reinforcement from people and and but but man things were meager and having people uh one day i i ran into peter hart who i just barely knew and peter said you're really doing a great job and i you know this is at a point where it's like you know am i going to close this thing down do i need to go get a job or, or having Johnny Apple was the chief correspondent for the New York Times and had been their top political reporter when he, uh, he saw me at something that came over and told me what it told me I was doing a really good job. And one of the things I'd done was started sending it out to every major political reporter back in the mid to late 80s, because I wanted them, you know, if, you know in case they quoted or cited. And that's, which is exactly what happened. And where uh, Apple and, and David Broder, and Al Hunt was the bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal then. And people saying, quoting it, citing it, that it gave it a credibility that, uh, you know, people that a year or two earlier, three years earlier would have never heard of. But, but having those kinds of people stop you and tell you, give you encouragement, uh, that made a huge
0: difference. At your most active time, what was an average week uh, in the life of an election handicapper?
1: Before 98, till 98, from um, 86 to 98, I was also writing a at roll call. And a lot of time I was officing there and for a while. And um, Stu Rothenberg was also writing a common there, and he was down the hall from me. So we would do joint candidate meetings, which was just great fun. But there were days when we'd have two, three, four candidate meetings with House candidates, Senate candidates. We would, there would be uh, the committees in the old days used to do briefings from time to time. Um, I would love going and doing, sitting down. Um, and 94 was the first cycle when I had a, we had our first House editor. We had had a Senate, a, a, another Senator for a couple of cycles before that. But going over to the committees, to the, Uh, DCCC to the NRCC or NRSC or DSCC, and starting off with Alabama, go to Wyoming, going through every single competitive race, and just sort of on background, comparing notes. To me, that was the most fun thing going where, and they were curious what we were seeing, because first of all, If you're at the NRCC or you're at the DCCC, you're obviously not meeting candidates from the other side. To be able to get a perspective of someone who's meeting candidates from both sides, meeting, talking to consultants from both sides and kind of piecing together, trying to figure out, trying to crack the code, of what's going on in the race. So going through with the with the going through with the, the committees was always great fun and and then having people at the committees uh, sometimes share things with you and and uh, I'll talk out of school because I guess the statute of limitations has run out that first cycle 84 Senator Luger was the chair of the NRSC. Executive director of the NRSC was his former chief of staff this guy named Mitch Daniels. And he would give away the soil. He'd tell me all kinds of like great stuff. And the communications director, who was a friend, would be tearing the building down, trying to figure out who was leaking stuff to Charlie Cook. Charlie told her the answer 20 odd years later. They had access to a hell of a lot of data and some really good information. But a lot of times I've been doing this longer than they had. And so it was comparing notes, comparing perspectives.
0: Well, talk a bit. You mentioned uh, the candidate um, meetings you have, which is still a stop on uh, most candidates uh, agenda when they're making a swing through uh, D.C. Uh, Obviously, candidates need to have their facts straight, need to show some familiarity with the district, need to show some basic policy acumen, need to show some uh, some awareness of why they're running. But what uh, what tips would you say that separate a good candidate interview from one that is lacking?
1: What I would do, and I guess everybody does a little different, but what I would do is it's always, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, you know, is this guy, is this woman, man, is are they intelligent? Are they articulate? Do they know anything about issues? Do they know where they stand? Uh, what is the premise of their theory that they can get elected? How do they see it happening? You know, all these things. But the way I would always start it would be, Tell me about yourself. Tell me your life story. You know, born in a log cabin and 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 go long form and, and kind of get a sense of who they are. Segway uh, back when issue positions kind of mattered, uh, where now it's more partisanship than issues. And, you know, where are you on this or that? And it's where, you know, at a time when you might have uh, pro-life Democratic candidates or pro-choice Republican candidates, and, and you you things were a lot more nuanced in those days. Uh, can they articulate and defend a position to get past the talking points? And then why do you think? How do you how, do you, how are you going to win this? And various ones of us had different techniques. Uh, Jennifer Duffy, who was our Senate Governor editor program, would ask: Is um, if your opponent were coming in this afternoon? What would they tell us about you that I don't know? There was a little bit of a confessional there. I I can't tell one story because it was not done on the record. But let's just say that when over two years before the election, when a um, state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama was meeting with uh, Jennifer talking about his race for the Senate, and she asked him that question and about what would your opponent probably tell me about you? I mean, things like that were really, you learned a lot. And particularly when it was an open seat and you'd be meeting with two or three from each side, maybe, uh, and you're piecing all this together and you're calling sources in the states. And it's like triangularly, you're piecing together information coming from different angles. You know, you also learn, don't fall in love with a politician. I mean, they're just going to break their heart, you know, and and, you know, there's some you really like and some that you need to work harder to be fair about. And um, uh, some are intriguing. And, and there's some that are just like really neat people. But, you know, that they don't have a chance in the world of winning. Sometimes a candidate would come through really early, like when they just got in the race and they would come by and see uh, and they're raw and they don't know a lot, they haven't, they're no, they, they, they really shouldn't have come, they shouldn't have come to you then. You're forming an opinion of them. Maybe they improve six months later, a year later, that sort of thing. And I, I learned that when you form an early assessment, you need to keep your mind because they can, because a lot of candidates, particularly first-time candidates do get better as they come along.
0: Try to be somewhat open-minded. Is there one or two of these sitting members or in our NRCC chairs, DCCC chairs, uh, who has impressed you over the years in terms of elected officials of their not just raw political skills, but their real strategic acumen as it relates to winning elections?
1: And One of the things I learned is that if you're chair of a House or Senate campaign committee for one side or the other, or an executive director, or your senior staff, You can make a difference in some key races, but if if a wave is hitting, you know what? It doesn't matter how good you are. And for example, in 1994, the DCCC, Vic Fazio, was the chair in California. It was one of the best House campaign committees I ever saw. They really were. and got crucified. A 52-seat net loss. They could work their hearts out. They could do everything right. But you know what? If it's a wave, you're done. You know was a fascinating chair was uh, when Phil Graham was chair of the Republican senatorial. That uh, every once in a while, I get a call from uh, his press secretary saying, Senator Graham would like to see you. And so I would go over to his office in the Russell building and we'd start off and go through. And there'd be one staffer. And this is very unusual. And we'd go through race by race. And we'd say he'd, he'd tell me what he thought of this race, and then he'd look at me like, "Do you have anything to contribute?" <laughs> and 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 <laughs> it was I've never had a, a chair of a of a House or Senate committee that wanted to do that completely independent of the campaign of the committee staff, and I'm sure it drove the committees crazy uh, to to have them do that. Tom Davis at the NRCC. Martin Frost at the, was at D-Triple. We we're all really good. Well, when Rahm was executive director of the D-Triple C, we had some, or political director, I should say, we, we had some interesting, interesting conversations. And occasionally, you know, sometimes you have conversations with people that would get a little heated, where uh, they're trying to convince you of something. And occasionally it was, I mean, there were times when one side or the other might think they were in worse shape than we thought they were. And I never knew whether it was expectations or, or not. But I guess it was when Ron was chair was it 2006, um, where we, we thought it was Democrats were probably going to have a better cycle than they thought. And we've had it the other way around. Um, but where, you know, sometimes if you're on one side, you see all the problems, you see all the challenges, but you may not be as aware of the ones that the other side is uh, facing the other side uh and but more times than not it you're
0: seeing sunshine and you're seeing some dark clouds uh, we'll talk about you see you mentioned that you hear from uh, committee chairs, you know actual senators and House members and staff. and there's value in comparing notes and they just want to check their information uh, against what you're hearing, you know your own instincts as well as what you've gleaned from the Republican side. There's also the assumption that what you are writing, what you were saying, is actually moving things in Washington is actually uh, having real world consequences. So can you talk about what could happen based on the words of Charlie Cook and some of your colleagues?
1: I don't think we are nearly as influential as we were twenty years ago. And you know, there was a time when political action committees, defined as labor, corporate, trade association, et cetera, where they played a really big piece of the financial in the world of the House and Senate. Nowadays it's actually fairly small. But in those days, if we or Stu's newsletter, if we were saying somebody had a chance it opened, I mean, it opened doors if we were pessimistic and where it was. And, I, and it was the kind of thing where I was always really nervous about that because I don't want to be responsible for whether somebody wins or loses or, or can't or can't raise money, that sort of thing. And so I tried to kind of put blinders on and not think about consequences because that'll just, you know, that'll drive you crazy. But back in the old, old, old days, you know, there were a handful of people, Business Industry Political Action Committee, a woman named Bernadette Booty, was their expert on House races. And and four, if you were a Republican running for Congress, and if she gave the thumbs up, you could raise a hell of a lot of money. If she gave you a thumbs down. Guess what? You just want, I mean, there were places that were formed of conventional wisdom and steer, hey, this is one that it it, it seems like a long shot, but it's a pause one or this one isn't. So I I chose to try to not think about that. But yeah, no, back in the old days, but now with the way money and politics is now, I I don't think we are nearly as influential. And, And to be perfectly honest, nobody kisses our asses the way they did back in the old days. and and there's a reason because we did have, I mean, it's not that we don't have any impact, but man, it it was nothing. it was nothing like 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 it was back uh, in those days. thing is, and I would tell people, labor, corporate, whatever, don't rely just on us. I mean, you need to compare. What do we say with, you know, compare, get, get different vantage points and it's always better. You're always going to have a better if you include. I mean, and I would, it's the same thing with media consumption. Anybody that relies on all of, all of their information or understanding on one entity, man, that's that, you know, that, that's, that's not a healthy thing at all.
0: Aside from some of the, you know, there's, you know, in wave years, as you mentioned, you can have fluky results, scandals uh, can create uh, surprises. But, you know, aside from those type of examples, is there a race or two that, that stick out in your mind as real surprises, races that um, you just didn't see it in the cards, but yet through the quality of a candidate, a quality of the campaign, again, aside from wave years, aside from scandals, that the right candidate running the right campaign actually surprises you?
1: Yeah, I mean, generally, a lot of times there's like one random house race. uh, The one that sticks out in my mind most recently, flying into Washington. I'm sitting next to some guy who's a lobbyist who I didn't know, and we kind of, he knew who I was, and we were kind of chatting. We're landing at, I think, National, and he turns on his phone, and he says, it was a primary night, and he said, you're not going to believe this. Eric Cantor just lost his time. Mm. I mean, I, I knew Cantor had an opponent, you know, and I knew what Laurie Ingram had been beaten out. Of. I mean, but but it's like every once in a while, there's one that that just comes out of the blue that you just didn't see coming. But, you know, and, and, and you know, generally in retrospect, if you go back, you take it apart, you can kind of figure out, okay, what did you miss? What should we have seen? And hopefully you learn something from every single, every single one of those. You, know, you, you do get those from time to time. And, and uh, there was a long time that we had a policy uh, that we would never put an incumbent member of Congress worse than toss-up. That toss-up was as bad as it was going to get. And it came from having had experiences back in the mid to late 80s where an incumbent would be. I mean, I remember in Florida, Senate race, 86, Paula Hawkins. At one point, she was darn near 20 points behind. How do you keep a race in toss up when someone's 17, 18, 20 points behind? You can't, you know. And damn, if she didn't come back. At one point, it got to be like a two point race again. And then it popped back out. But where it's 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 uh, uh, there's a point where it's like there's no way this one's coming back. There just isn't. And you you kind of need to. And, and where we've been having to do we do that occasionally. But I there is nothing worse in the whole world than walking down, you know, a corridor in the House or Senate office building and having a member of Congress say, you said I was going to lose. You were wrong. And, 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 uh, you know, and so for a long time, I just, and then you got to realize that, you know what, you got to do the best you can. And at some point that, uh, an incumbent can be, uh, it's like a dead fish. I mean, it's, it just, it's so dead. It's starting to smell and that you just can't plausibly keep it and toss up anymore. But I'm still to this day, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with it. And, um, um, and, and it's hard, particularly to you know somebody. I mean, like last year, I think Cory Gardner is a great guy. You know, I spent some time with a really, really good guy, but there was a point where, you know, he wasn't he wasn't coming back. And I, and particularly when it's saw, you know, that you know that, that kind of you know, but you have to kind of suck it up. And and when you you know people, and I generally try to not get close to people. That are you know in elective office or running for anything, but if it's somebody you know, uh, uh, you just got to play straight. And there have been times when I've gone to my editor to my editor for that kind of race and said, "Now look, I'm keeping hands off of this. Okay, this whatever you do, you do." And and I generally, I mean, generally I do that anyway. But where I've got to, I got to stay out of this. You and 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 because I I don't either either I either I might not be objective or maybe I would be objective, but someone might think I'm not objective. You know, in in this business, your credibility, it's all you got.
0: You mentioned that you do uh, have done a lot of meet the press over the years. You you did CNN and you and uh, you and Stu Rothenberg for for a long time would pop up on um, CNN a lot and uh, the inside politics era. Uh, what have you deduced over the years? What have you picked up over the years about how to be good and effective on television?
1: Oh, wow. Well, something that I don't think I did nearly enough early on is um, if I'm going to do something now, I prepare. I, and I never did used to do that. Um, and and I kind of marvel in the same thing for speeches where I used to just get up and wing it. And how the hell I succeeded, I had no earthly idea, but it's, it's, it's say, okay, what are they going to ask me? And what is the best way to say that? What is the best way to explain this so that a normal person would understand? And where Stu and I were lucky was when we were coming along in the mid-80s, late-80s, it was when C-SPAN and CNN were coming of age. And where, in the old days, all there was was ABC, CBS, NBC. And if you were young or relatively unknown, you didn't make it on one of those. And so when CNN started, and when CNN started the Inside Politics show with with Bernard Shaw and Judy Woodruff, and and where Stu and I would be on, it was five o'clock every uh, uh, every, every afternoon. We would come on like once or twice, you know, once a week. and we are, that was like must see, uh, you know, in the political world. But we are, it's, OK, what are they going to ask? And what's the best way to say it? And how do I kind of cook it down, bake it down, to distill it down, to get a point across? But I will tell you, i did I do that back in the old days? But I remember the first time I did meet where Russert sat me down a couple of days in advance and sort of said, OK, and, and started not telling me what he was going to ask, but doing kind of like it. And I think trying to get me accustomed to how you how you how you do that, you know, and, and I sort of feel a little bit more more, more comfortable. But um, uh, I, I just say prep and, and, and don't
0: you know, don't there's no, no substitute for for good preparation. Right.
1: Right. And for practice. And, you know, when I would get my start, I would do these these uh, close up groups of high school students coming to Washington. I bet I did fifty or sixty or seventy, you know, of these free speech, you know, but where it was practiced so that when people are paying your real money, you kind of got it down of how to put together, how to construct a speech, and how to, how to, how to, uh, and, and how to, how to deliver it. And where I've had members of Congress who said, "Hey, I, you spoke to a close-up group that I was in X years ago." It's like, wow, make me feel old. Uh, uh, or, you know, consultants and staff and stuff. So is don't assume that people know everything you know, but at the same time, don't try to download every single thing you know so that there's so much people aren't pulling out the important things.
0: You mentioned uh, several people that currently work for you, and you've certainly hired people, uh, uh, very accomplished people uh, uh, in years before as well. But you mentioned Amy Walter, Jessica Taylor, Dave Wasserman. Uh, Over the years, how have you gone about finding the right people to hire?
1: I'm trying to think. I think Jessica is the first time we ever hired someone who was actually a journalist before, because what we try to do is analyze as opposed to report. And as reporting has gotten snarkier, and and the thing is that people that have worked in campaigns tend to look at things differently than people that have never worked in a campaign before. The brief time I was a pollster was a long time ago, but you learn how to analyze data. And the thing is, I think most reporters, I think most political reporters, don't have a clue how to analyze a poem. Not, not, a, not a clue. And so what I'm going to, looking for is someone who loves this stuff and is fair-minded. You know, the highest compliment somebody in my business can get is at the end of a conversation say, you know what, I can't tell whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I can't tell which side you're on. I can't tell. That's that's the highest compliment you can get for people to know and have an acumen for politics, to love it, to be able to drop whatever their inner their feelings, drop them at the side, and look at things as objectively as humanly possible. And that's getting harder and harder and harder because you know nowadays the level of ill will on each side towards the other where each side believes, you know what? There is no way that anybody on that side is going to act in good faith. Can't happen. This can't happen. I mean, so in that kind of world, it is really hard to get someone who's very, very, very clinical. You know, I came from the Democratic side, but found myself in the middle in my mind and realized, you know what? I shouldn't be working for either side. Jennifer Duffy, who uh, uh, retired from us uh, years uh, at the end of a year, a little over a year ago, she was the communications director for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. She was really good, and I found her to be really objective about giving me the strengths and weaknesses of candidates. And I found that that she so that a couple years later, when I was at a point where I could finally hire somebody. I wanted to hire her, but just someone who could park their, whatever their feelings were, if they had them, park them at the side. And where, um, so it's it's objectivity and fairness is more, is as important as understanding and knowing this stuff. And, and uh, uh, someone who, when they're wrong, is going to be in pain. Damn. I missed that. Yeah. And where it will hurt them. I mean, that's the way I feel when I'm wrong about something. Uh, and I want someone who who is going to approach things this way rather than inwardly cheerleading for one side or the other. Uh, well, let's end on a
0: recommendation. You mentioned What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer as a seminal political work. Is there another uh, book or two that should be on that list?
1: The, the, the Robert
0: Caro, Lyndon Johnson series,
1: and I would start as four volumes that are right over right on that bookshelf over there, but start read them in chronological order. That that would be one. And, and the thing is, others are sort of more topical or more. I mean, like there was one I, I had a, one of my, my first boss, one of my first bosses in politics used to say that there are two books in politics that everyone ought to read. And one was a, a book uh, that people in their mid to late 60s that were political science. may know that was Scammon and Wattenberg called the Real Majority that came out around 71, 72, and it was like who without using no, they didn't use the term swing voters in those guys those days, but basically who was a swing voter and what makes them tick, and that was one that my, uh, my boss, Bill Wester would, would say. And the other was a biography of Huey Long by T. Harry Williams, who was a history professor at LSU called, just called Huey Long. It was the definitive biography for a zillion years of Huey Long. And this boss was from Kentucky. And, but he, you know, he said, these are the two books you should read every year. And so over time, certain books become less relevant. Um, I think, uh, uh, after the 2016 election, for example, um, identity crisis that Lynn Vabrit from UCLA and John Sides and Michael Tesler wrote about the role of identity in politics. Oh, I think that's, that's pretty damn important. Um, Alan Abramowitz's work on, on, uh, on negative partisanship. Uh, you know, there's just been a lot on sort of tribalism and that's, that, that, that kind of thing. Uh, that, uh, but it, that's where it sort of, it, 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 it changes as our politics change, because what was relevant in the old days is no longer relevant or, or as relevant. And And one thing that I, I miss is that I think media consulting, doing commercials and whether they're television or on online or whatever, I think it's a lost art. I mean, Back in the old days, it was trying to convince people this is someone who is worthy of serving you in as governor, as senate, as house. And and whether watching people that could tell a narrative. And you know, when I was coming along, it was a tail end of when they would have 15 or 30-minute commercials. That would be, you know, like Charles Guggenheim doing cinema verite, telling the story of a candidate. And, and I remember seeing one one time that was uh, that Guggenheim, who was a, a you know, Emmy Award winning filmmaker, uh, Bob Squire had been a lot of David Sawyer. A lot of these people were filmmakers before they started doing commercials and they they had the skills to do this. But Uh, I was watching this 15 minute biographical and what what our state needs that for Sid McMath, who was running for governor of Arkansas. And I had tears running. I'd never heard of the man before. And this is my first job out of college. And I used to watch TV ads, you know, the big three quarter inch machines they used to have where it was telling a compelling story. You know, I I think there are a lot of people that wouldn't know how to tell uh, uh, how to do a good quality, a good positive ad if their lives depended upon it. Occasionally you'll see at conventions, you'll see a convention film uh, that's really good. And whether it was, you know, the Obama film in 2008 or or I remember the first Republican convention I ever went to was 1984. It was the Reagan reelect. And they did this um, morning in America. Fabulous. I mean, just fab. I mean, we're pull your heartstrings, but that's the way I advertising political ads as I remember it used to be.
0: What about another recommendation that's not brain food so much, but just comfort food? What is something, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a TV show, a movie, a recipe, a food, a product, uh, a, a new hobby, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try?
1: Figuring out who's who's really smart And watching everything, you know, you know, you could do Google alerts and where anything that anybody says, I'm not going to give you a whole long list, but take um, Ron Brownstein. Every time he writes anything, it pops up on my Google alert and just having a handful of really smart people. That I'm to know what they're saying, and I may end up agreeing or not agreeing. But what they're going to, what they write or think about in Atlantic has a whole lot. Like it's going to prompt me to get me on a on a uh, uh, a line to coming up with a new idea. But um, you know, I, I just spent a boatload of time in a leather chair over over there, just uh, reading a bunch of the papers, and then now they are just sort of online, and then going off and. I like original sources, Brookings, the Public uh, Religion Research Institute. There are lots of entities that are doing great, great, great work. Uh, really get your brain going on and lead you to other, other things. But in terms of comfort, back when we had baseball, the Washington National, or we were season ticket holders. Get in your 60s and you start stepping back and just getting more perspective and Suddenly, the things that seem so damn important aren't quite as important. And some things that that maybe you should have taken more seriously were. I mean, I think everybody professionally, you know, they're mulligans that they wish they could take. But Zach, this has been a lot of fun. Um, gosh, I wish I'd anticipated some of these because, uh, you know, I might have come up with something more thoughtful. But
0: No, this was a real treat.